Welcome to West Quasset Chapel's podcast. For more information, visit us online at westquassettchapel.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. We're going to be reading in just a second from Romans 12. And actually, I'm only going to read verses 15 and 16. Romans chapter 12, it's page 790 in the church Bibles. And I'm just going to read verses 15 and, and 16. All right, this is the word of God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to, willing to associate with people of low position Do not be conceited. All right. I I wonder if you would let me say this before we start. I think it fits the context on the way here this morning. I was kind of overwhelmed with gratitude to God for the fact that he allows me to live in the place where he put me in Itasca County. And I was just thinking about what has already transpired over the years and whatever is coming next. And honestly, I was just very, very grateful. He couldn't have put me in a better place. So in light of that, if, if you feel the same way, can we just take maybe half a minute to just in our mind quietly thank God that he put us in the place where we're at? And then I'll pray and we'll get started. Just to him, Jesus said that if we thirst, we should come to him. No one else can satisfy, we should come to him. Jesus said if we are weak, we should come to him. No one else can be our strength, we should come to him. For the Lord is good and faithful. He will keep us day and night. We can always run to Jesus. Jesus, strong and kind. Father, we we cherish that truth. We, We believe it. And we need it to be true. For, for where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And, and we do thirst. And I am, we are weak. Therefore, right now, Father, we, we look to you for everything that is good and that is needed as your word is preached. For Jesus' sake, we ask these things. Amen. I think one of the great gospel verses in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him... Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. It's 15 Greek words, a bit more in English. And this, let's just think about them just for a moment. God, okay, Almighty God made him, and the him is Jesus, sin. Okay, so just think for a second. What does it mean that God made Jesus sin? Well, he made Jesus sin in the sense that God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had committed every sin by every one, though in fact he committed none of them. So hanging on the cross, Jesus was holy, harmless, and undefiled. Hanging on the cross, he was the spotless lamb. And for a nanosecond of his existence, he he never, for not one nanosecond of his existence, did he know sin. He was holy God on the cross, but God made him and God treated him. And and let me just put it more honestly, God was treating Jesus on the cross as if he lived my life. 
So God punished Jesus for my sin, and then in turn, Jesus treats me as if I lived his life. Indeed, God treats me as if I lived Jesus's life. And that is the great doctrine of substitution. And on that doctrine turns the heart of the church because it's the heart of the gospel. Indeed, it's the heart of God towards his people. And what a person gets is complete forgiveness covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He gets, they get imputed righteousness, which never goes stale, right? It doesn't wax and wane. So that when God looks at the cross, he, he sees you and I. And, and when he looks at the Christian, and he always looks at the Christian, he sees Christ. He always sees Christ. So God looks at you, and this is a, a lot of places. Here's one, Colossians 1, 28, or 22 and 23. He looks at you, and he sees a spotless, clean, pure, without blame, completely free from accusation, completely free from condemnation, saint. So that means the Christian can stand unafraid, uncondemned, not only before the condemnation of the world, wherever it may come from, but we can stand unafraid and uncondemned before the exposure of the mirror of God's word because what is revealed as we read those verses, that we have failed in has been covered by the blood of Jesus. And don't let anyone ever take that away from you. And don't let anyone demote that by saying, okay, yeah, but. I don't care how big their yeah, but is. And don't let anyone ever say, well, that sounds like cheap grace. You know, you say, think it through. What that actually is, is amazing grace. So I was reading John Calvin a few weeks ago, and what he said, and what I read was right. We will never worship God with a sincere heart or be aroused to be in awe of him and obey him with enough energy until we properly understand how much we are indebted to his mercy. That, that's, that's Calvin. Listen to Luther. Learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet you put on yourself, yet you set on me, excuse me, what, what was yours. You became what you were not, sin, that I might become what I was not, righteous. And of course, that means a lot of things. But what it means for us today is that when we read those verses, and I only read two of them, those verses do not come to us unattached to those gospel truths that we just walked through. And I can promise you, and I stake my life on this, that is God's mind. So there's no degrees of gospel application. So, you know, God doesn't just bring, oh, excuse me, <clears throat> just a little bit of gospel truth over you. So when you, you know, when you fail a little bit, God just sprinkles a little bit of grace. But when you are, you know, you're a bit better, he puts like buckets of grace. You know, you're just like, what in the world is that? Jesus did not die for that kind of thing. So we cannot act, and listen carefully, we cannot act as if our behavior, good or bad, changes anything 
on what Christ has accomplished by his suffering and death on the cross or changes anything about how God loves us or the intensity that God has in his love for us. So yes, God is a holy God. The moment that we begin to think that he is not, then we're imagining a completely different God altogether. However, part of God's holiness is God's graciousness. Because his holiness and graciousness is not, you know, two different characteristics of God that war with each other inside of God. So God doesn't have eternal battle with his holiness and with his grace. I mean, humans do. We understand that. But God doesn't have any internal battle with his holiness and his graciousness. And says, like, okay, which one's going to win today? Part of God's holiness is God's graciousness. God is a gracious God. And the moment that we begin to think that he's not then we are also imagining a completely different God altogether. So, for example, in these verses that we've just read, Paul is not nagging and scolding the church in Rome as he gives these moral imperatives. Nagging and scolding never yet made anyone holy. Now, we know that the constant pointing out of people's blemishes and the constant point, pointing out of people's faults, nagging and scolding, that's kind of like sometimes easy food for sermons. But that in itself never cured anyone. So this person says, well, how do you know that? I mean, isn't the way that people change is to tell them, you know, the truth and then teach them to do better? So how do we know what I just said before that is true. Well, it's in the Bible. Actually, it's in the book of Romans. For example, now bear with me. Romans 2.1. At whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. I mean, that's just kind of like a no-brainer. Here's another one, the same chapter. And now Paul's talking to Jewish teachers. If you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law. And they're like rhetorical questions. And so the average Jewish teacher is going, yes, we do. Yes, we do. If you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, yes, we do. Instructor of the foolish, teacher of the young, yes, we are. Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You know, amen, yes, we do. And then Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? Do you? That's the point. Do you? Now, do you understand what he's saying? Hey, teacher of mere moral imperatives, you know, those of you who preach the word, but your word is essentially do's and don'ts, and here's how. If you teach mere do's and don'ts, then teacher, preacher, why can't you fix yourself? Because teacher, do you still sin? Well, well, well. Teacher, do you still sin? So you see the kind of nagging and scolding and the, and the kind of list, that kind of teaching has been tried and should be found wanting. But I think all of us know that it isn't. There's more. Romans 5.20. The law was brought in. So the moral imperatives were brought in so that the trespass might increase. 
So, so the law, just flat law, flat, you know this, do's and don'ts, no gospel, actually excites sin, increases sin. It doesn't remove sin. Who says? Well, God does. Our Romans 7, 10 and 11, Paul says, as an apostle, I, Paul, found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, you know, don't do this and don't do that. What's wrong with you people kind of thing? actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. And loved ones, what Paul is saying, indeed what God's word is saying, the law of God stirs up what it actually forbids. The flat law of God, just flat moral imperatives, all it does is stirs up what it actually forbids. And the defect is not in the law, it is in us. The moral imperatives, the do's and don'ts of the law stimulate what, it, stimulate what it actually forbids. And the more that a person sets themselves to keep them, the more they find themselves transgressing it. Example, so get a bunch of teenagers in a room and, and honestly get a bunch of senior citizens in a room and say things like, now don't you kiss each other before marriage, wink, wink. Just do that, and the New Testament says they'll be kissing each other all over the place. All that does is excite sin. So nagging and scolding to do better doesn't just do nothing. It actually excites sin. And if you think about it, try nagging and scolding in a marriage. Try nagging and scolding with your children. I mean, what a terrible context to have to exist in. But, loved ones, we Christians, we do not exist in that realm. Not with our God. Yes, only God is good. But Jesus Christ, by his death, makes it so that we are made good as a gift. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Jesus Christ has paid much too high of a price for our redemption to let our sin collapse our relationship with him. So God loves us in the midst of our deepest failures, our largest despairs, and his power has the power to not only forgive us, but to even change the most ruined rebel lives, to change the hardest of hearts. And that's why after all that, in light of that, that's why these imperatives are given. So we need to continue verse 15 and 16. Do you see it there? And, and just three points this morning. Empathy, unity, and humility. You see it there? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. I mean, just think about that. Excuse me just for a second. Just think about that in, in the context of just normal life. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Okay, so the first word is empathy. Empathy for others is what is called for here. And so we think about Jesus. Jesus wept with, with those who were weeping. And so that means we can too. We can be happy for others in the good things that God has done for them. And, and, and even in the good th- things that God gives to them. And we mentioned this for a bit last week, but this verse tells us that we can control our emotions. 
Happiness is an emotion. Sadness is an emotion. And so for Jesus' sake, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be happy and we can mourn. So what that means to me is we sacrifice our emotions on the altar of other people's lives. We sacrifice our actions to guard their emotions. We sacrifice our rights and we sacrifice our time. And the only boundary in those sacrifices is the truth of God. That's, that's the only thing that constrains us. And that means whatever people need in the context that God puts us in, Paul says, by God's grace, give it. Okay, so what does the happy person need? Just think. I can tell you what they don't need. When they tell you their hap, hap, happy story, they do not need you or I saying to them, well, that never happens to me. Well, God, why doesn't that ever take place in my life? They don't need, you know, like, tell me your secret. And what does a sad person need? What does the weeping person need? Well, they need to know in some way that what is breaking their heart is breaking your heart too. And now we know that we can, in the power of the Holy Spirit, for the glory of Christ, we can give Happiness where it's needed, and sadness where it's needed. And so what this tells me that in Christ, Jesus promotes real, deep, emotional, connective love. Okay? Real, deep, emotional, connective love. And to not be able to connect with each other on the emotional level That's like a plague in our life. My sister, I think she has this on her refrigerator at home or in her room. It's a quote by Ian McLaren. Be kind to everyone. For everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle that you know nothing about. Is that not true on some level if we wrote out our secret battles today on paper and and made them anonymous and just threw them around in the church? Wouldn't we we be kind of sad? It's not a defect to have battles, is it? Not in this flesh. Empathy. And then Paul says empathy is to give way to unity. Uh, Verse 16, live in harmony with each other. Literally, literally, it means have your mind set on the same things. So, you know, the wisdom of this age essentially says, you know, find out what you want and then you go for it. And stay in relationships only if, the, you know, they're returning the benefit to you. They're helping you on your personal journey. But, says the wisdom of the world. I mean, if the benefits stop and you have to make lots of sacrifices or the other person and they're impinging on, you know, your life then maybe you need to hold back. Or maybe, you know, good golly, Miss Molly, you need to just get out. Uh, Again, don't you have a better estimation of the value that you have? You, You don't need them to weigh you down so you get out and you get away from that person because they're costing you too much. It's pretty much worldly wisdom. And, of course, the problem with that, there's many problems, but besides it's anti gospel. I mean, thank God that Jesus did not say that to us at any point in our existence. 
It's way too simple and it's way too naive of a way to think of people. People are much too complex for that kind of thing. So the average person outside of Christ does not understand the difference between someone who's trying to serve other people and in their service to other people, try to find satisfaction, try to find justification for themselves, and simply using people to justify themselves before themselves, before other people, or before God. They don't understand that versus someone who's trying to serve others as a response to having been justified and saved by our bleeding Savior, Jesus Christ, who did not give up on them. There is a world of difference. I mean, don't you think this often? God did not give up on me. God help me to not give up on other people. Help me to be someone who does to others what he has done for me. Now, if we're using our sacrifices for others as a way then to feel worthwhile and to feel valuable, I mean, that's understandable. I'm sure, beginning with myself, we've all done that. But what we do when we do that is we're making an idol of that person that we're loving and helping. And the thought process is, my goodness to you will bring better feelings to me. That's not love. That, that is not harmonious living. That's actually too much self-love. Therefore, verse 16, when I see to live in harmony with other Christians, to have the same mind, I think of... a. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you. Although Jesus was God, although he had it all by rights, he made himself nothing. He lost it all in a moment in time for us. I think of Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I think of he was put to death for our sins, for my sins, and raised to life for our justification. And I think of the equality that that brings in the church. I think that he himself bore our sins in his body, that we would die to sin and live for righteousness. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, for Christ's love compels us, because we're convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died for those who live then should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. I think of love does not dishonor other people. Love is not self-seeking. Love does not keep record of wrongs. 1 Corinthians 13. Love always trusts. And love rejoices in the truth. And then I think of Ephesians 5. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then this is what I do in my mind when I hear that verse. I say, okay, Joe, how did God forgive you? (laughs) Because of someone else. Jesus. And so you forgive them in that same realm. And you see, that is the mindset that leads to unity. Tell me another mindset that is like that. So I know that, you know, we might not all eat pasta on Tuesdays and, you know, uh, drive trucks on Wednesdays, but we have the same father. We have the same father who wakes us up every morning. We have the same righteousness. We have the same spirit. Every Christian. We have the same father who keeps our hands to the plow. He's our king, he's our savior, he's a friend, he's a good friend, and he's our righteousness. And that means, and what Paul is saying, that when people are hurting, whether they're in-house or outside the house, when people are hurting, 
It ought to hurt us too. And so if you can just imagine your life as like one long journey. And God puts all these different people on our path along the journey. The one thing that God would say, not only live in harmony with them, but don't, don't give up on them so quickly. You know, our master has plenty of resources. <laughs> There's a gentleman named Jared Wilson. He was writing a book which was to be edited by none other than J.I. Packer. And so there was a section in Wilson's book when he wrote this, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Not his law, not his berating, not his exasperation or his conjoling, his kindness, period, end of thought. So he puts a period there. So, so the story goes that Packer is editing that part of it and he sees the period there and instead of just the period, he adds a line and makes an exclamation point. So it's not like God's kindness, period. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And then this is what Jared writes. As I looked at his correction, I couldn't stop looking at it. And then I began to weep. And I'll tell you why. Twelve years ago, when I was at the bottom of the barrel and the bottom of my life and felt useless and worthless and unlovable and didn't want to even be alive anymore and was ready to take my life... I could not imagine in my wildest dreams that someday I'd be staring at something I'd written that had been edited by J.I. Packer. If you said that to me, I would have laughed at you and then punched you probably. I have no capacity for such things. And as I stared at this edit, edited sentence, just this one little pen stroke that makes a world of difference in a cushion chair behind my big desk, I started crying remembering what it was like to be face down on the floor of my guest bedroom, wishing I was dead. Every saint has their own story of need. You, you might be in midstream of that story. You might be past that story. We might be, hate to say it, but getting ready to get into that story. No matter, Paul says, live in harmony with one another. And I would add to that, just remember, just remember what we were pulled from and, and how he pulled us out of that. Just remember what Christ gave up to save us. Before we get to our final point, Friday night, my wife and I were watching uh, Downton Abbey. Ugh. I should have watched it years ago. We're in season six. This was episode two. Lady Edith was one of their daughters. And, and oh, I, you know what? I'm going to ruin this for some of you who have never seen it. But just, it's good enough to be ruined. Just bear with me. Lady Edith, the, the daughter of, of Lord of Crawley, he, she had a child out of wedlock. She tried to keep it a secret for a bit, but you can never do stuff like that. And, and so her father found uh, out, and they're in the room, and she says to her father, Father, do you forgive me? And listen to what her father said. Oh, my darling. I'm sure I need your forgiveness quite as much as you need 
Let that mind be in you. And I promise you that we'll live in harmony with one another. Final word, humility. Okay, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Remember at Christmas time, those of you that were here, I, I said that I often struggle with this verse, not because I think it's wrong. It's, of course it's right. But I think of myself often as a person of low position, and, and this is my pride. I'm sure it is. I don't want someone to be good to me uh, out of pity. You know, they look at me like he's not measuring up, so let's be nice to him because he, could, you know, he looks like he could use the help. Jim Carrey, I found this quote a week and a half ago. He, he was at a graduation giving the speech, and he, part of it, imagine struggling with being homeless, and, and, and someone comes with a camera in your face to give you a meal, and you have to take it. Imagine that feeling. Please stop doing that. If, if you go to help someone, do it with kindness, and not to feed your ego, which made me think of that in this verse. But this is what we know. We know that since the fall, strength, status are applauded, and then weakness and low position are thought of as some kind of defect. Remember? So it means that somehow you, you missed the mark. You've missed the very best in life. You're not smart enough. You're not trying hard enough. You're not being obedient enough in the Christian context. You're not, you're not praying enough. Or just, you know, there's just not much to you. So there, and you get what you get. And so sometimes if we are in that framework, we essentially try to do everything to get out of that context or to hide that truth. Because the worst thing in the world is to be perceived as a person of low position. But then you have to think Christian. Jesus Christ, he lived a masterful life. And he was the one person who was, everybody that he associated was a person of low position. It's called the human race. And what did he do? He would go to the end to save us at every level of our existence. And so what we need to do right up front is to recognize, to disassociate ourselves with other people, certain types of people, because of status or, or ranking or whatever. That's how the world functions. That is quintessential worldliness. And there are few kinds of pride in a Christian than that are worse, I would say, than, you know, like snootiness and arrogance. What right does the Christian have to esteem themselves as better than someone else? Not, even, not, even, not, not any inherited right as human beings. And so to be obsessed with, with questions of status and, you know, layers of society, upper class, lower class, divisions, distinctions, popularity, you know, who's in power, who's not in power, forgive me, who's cool, who's not cool. To look at people and say, you know, do they have power? Do they have position? Do they have beauty? Do, they have, do, do I like them? That is so anti-God. And, and honestly, this is just me. I struggle with overseas missions who they say, okay, listen, let's, let's just focus on these certain types of people. And usually the types of people that they focus on are the people of high position in society. And the thinking goes like this. If we get all the high position people in society and we get them converted, then they're going to influence the people of lower society. And, you know, you kind of have like a Wheaties approach to Christianity. So, you know, let's get a few champions, a few winners. Let's, let's get some bankers and some sports stars and some beauty queens 
things and help them come to Jesus. And then poor little Timmy, you know, in his low position with holes in his socks, you know, who, who hides doobies in his rooms and smokes them on a Saturday night and has a whole lot of trouble on the internet, you know, then he'll see these champions. And he'll like want Jesus too because, you know, Jesus can make him a winner too. And there you have it. 1 Corinthians 1.18, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were of high position. Uh, that's the NIV. Not many of you were the upper, upper social classes. God's word translation. Not many mighty, King James Version. Not many important people, people of power or wealth. So, the word associate there... It's, it's one of the strongest words in the Greek language that has to do with binding yourself to someone. It means to be led away or carried away. So it's intense. Galatians 2.13, uh, 2 Peter 3.17, don't be carried away by sin. So sin grabs onto you and Paul's like, don't be carried away. It's the same word, but here this meaning is better. A willingness to conform yourself willingly to tie your life to people of low position. That's how you could read it literally. Or change the order, change the direction of your life for those low-lying people, for the lowly. So we know how it is, you know, one hit wonder, one good deed, shake hands, and we're done. That's not what Paul is saying here. But we are told here by Paul to connect your life to people of low position, so much so that the fundamental direction of your life has to change. That the high life, if you would, or the Christian life, is to actually be around, forgive me, low lives. That's what Paul's saying. Now, maybe you've grown up under the Christian teaching that, you know, the more holier you are, then you're going to get smarter, and you're going you're to be less dependent, and you're going to be more independent, and you're going to have more freedom, and maybe, you know, a few blessings along the way, and you'll have a few more dollars, and look at you go, and then you can really live the high life. And what's the high life? Where you can go where you want to go and be around who you like to be around with. So if you see somebody and you don't like them, you have the ability to get out. You don't want to be around them. This instruction is not even close to that. Part of our existence is to not to avoid people of high position. We understand that. But not to avoid people of low position as well. Put your life in the stream, if you would, of people of low position. So David Brooks, he writes op-ed pieces for the New York Times. I like him. He wrote a book, The Second Mountain, a while back. And in the book, he's questioning the meaning of life. And, and this is what he writes as follows. I can only answer that question the way Alistair McIntyre wrote. If I can answer the prior question of what stories or story do I find myself a part of, if there are no overarching stories, then life is meaningless. Life does not feel meaningless. These stories provide, in their simple yet endless complex ways, a living script. They provide the horizon of meaning in which we live our lives. Now, if you heard that quote, basically, like, what's your story? Because you need stories to live. And so often when we hear that, sometimes, you know, we have to make our story some grand thing. Some big gargantuan thing. Well, I'm going to do this, and after I do that, I'm going to do that. And of course, it's not my job to tell people their dreams or what their dreams can or cannot be. That's silly. 
But it is my job to preach the scriptures. So to despise the lowly or the unworthy and think that they shouldn't be in our notice, what that does then is reveals a false idea of what we would say is important. And I hope you understand that. When the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit that Jesus taught in the gospels is, blessed are the poor in spirit. He actually says in Luke, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the merciful. But if a person grows in arrogance, then what will happen is love will just ebb away from us. And every lifeless, loveless life, every loveless life, I think G.K. Chesterton said this, is a life of little use. Every loveless life is a life of little use. Verse 16 then, we associate, let our lives be carried away in part by those of low position. And what does the end of the verse say? You see it there? Uh, Don't try to be smarter than God. That's my translation. Don't try to be smarter than God here. Don't be conceited. Remember Philippians, or excuse me, Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Right? So, So where are the places that we go where, I even hate saying this, but you have to say it. This is the only way I know how to say it. Where are the places that you go where there are people of low position? Where are they? Because we've got to go there. I mean, we understand time and effort and energy and life, and we all got to watch Netflix on Friday nights, excuse me, at least that we do at our house. But anyway, we understand that. But ask yourself again, where are the places that you go To connect with people of lower position. I I was thinking through the Gospels. Jesus, when you have a banquet and you're going to throw a big party, remember what he said about who you should invite? Isaiah prophesying about Jesus, the kind of person that he is. I'm thinking of the 12 disciples. I think if only two of them are from the high street, the rest are just like regular people. Lower Class, middle class. Do you know who Fanny Crosby is? She wrote a lot of hymns, a lot of hymns. She wrote A Blessed Assurance, Pass Me Not. Uh, uh, yeah, she wrote that one. And when she was in her 30s, she was serving at a school, and there was a 17 year old male secretary who was on staff there, and part of his job was to dictate uh, the poems that Fanny would give to the young boy. So she would speak and he would write down what she said. And, and the male secretary was Grover Cleveland. And, of course, he was the 22nd and 24th president of the United States. And so when he became president, Fanny would get invited to the White House And part of what Grover Cleveland would do is he would stop his work and he would get his notepad and he would get his pen and Fanny would dictate to him her poems and her music. And so he would do as the president of the United States what he did when he was 17 years old. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and do not become proud. Or do not be conceited. Two applications and we're done. Number one, 
God have mercy on me, a sinner. That phrase, it's in Luke 18, is a great blessing towards our personal holiness. God have mercy on me, a sinner, is a great blessing towards personal holiness. I know it's counterintuitive, but it is Christian. All good things in the Christian life begin with repentance. That's one. Two, think. This is where the love that God has given us, think. Think what Christ lived for. Consider what Christ died for. And if you answer those questions correctly, as you consider them, what he asked of us here, I think it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? It makes all the sense in the world. And with his help, we won't get it perfect, not in this flesh. But there'll be those big moments, those life-altering moments for the glory of God and for the good of someone else when they'll take place. And when it does, those good deeds done in Christ's name will echo for all eternity. Thank you for your attention. Let's, let's pray together. God and Father, please, please, for Jesus' sake, give us a wider and true view of your grace so that our hearts are free from every form of prejudice which can plague us and judgmentalism which can so easily be a part of us. And by that same grace, fill us with love for all people. Fill us with Jesus' love, beginning here. And please do this for Jesus' sake. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening this week. If you were helped or encouraged by this sermon, please share it with others. For additional information, visit us online at westquestchapel.com. There you'll find other resources to connect you to Christ in his church. Also, we invite you to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or our YouTube channel. We hope you join us again next week as we grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.